I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Rob Smith, our capital markets correspondent. We'll also hear from John Glenn MP, the UK's city minister. Earlier today, John Glenn spoke to the FT's banking summit in London, and he told us about his outlook for the banking sector as Brexit looms. Secondly, we'll take a look at the stress tests that were conducted in the UK last week. And finally, a look at Unicredit as it raises a very expensive bond. First, though, over to John Glenn. And here are a trio of snippets from John Glenn's speech to the FT's banking summit. Now, I understand that people want Brexit to be settled. They want the deal sealed so they can get on with their business. This deal will enable us to do that. It's now within our grasp and we will do everything possible to deliver it. I am confident and hopeful that my colleagues will understand that rejecting this deal will take us back to square one. It would clearly prolong the uncertainty and turbulence which threatens the unity of our country and the stability of the city. In all my engagement on Brexit with the financial services sector, I have urged business leaders to have faith that we will negotiate a deal that works in their interests. And I'm pleased to stand in front of you today to confirm that it is within reach. We have successfully negotiated an agreement on the future relationship for financial services when we leave the EU. The relationship will be of greater depth than any other the EU currently has with a third country in financial services. The joint position respects both sides' autonomy and reflects the full ambition of our proposal set out in the White Paper. It significantly improves on the existing equivalence regime to allow for a continued close relationship in recognition of the fact that the UK financial services hub is a European asset as much as a British one. Once we leave the EU, our traditional strengths will remain. But as our horizons broaden and we throw open our arms to the rest of the world, new vistas of opportunity will present themselves. It's already the case that 56% of our financial services exports are to countries outside the EU. And the fact is that this is where the world's fastest growing economies will be. Many of us in this room have been eager to make the most of this golden opportunity, and soon we will be able to. So 
So there we are. doesn't necessarily reflect the broader tone of other delegates at the FT's banking summit who were rather more worried about Brexit, but Mr Glenn resolutely upbeat. So on to our second topic, and last week the UK's Bank of England undertook a round of stress tests of the banking sector alongside producing projections for broader impacts that Brexit would have on the economy. David, all the banks fared pretty well. Relatively clean bill of health. Tell us exactly what the results were. Well, that's right. The headline undoubtedly is that all the banks passed and they passed a stress test that was more severe in many ways than the disorderly Brexit scenario that the bank has been talking about recently. This stress test is more severe because it also simulates a high degree of international stress and banks like HSBC and Barclays that were tested and standard chartered also have large global businesses too and so you know needed to be stress tested in that way too. So the headline is that they all passed but within that of course we're always looking for who did better and nationwide the Building Society comes out on top and Lloyd's came closest to failure. An interesting little nugget relating to Lloyd's and both Barclays, if I remember rightly, that once the stresses were applied, in order to get that pest mark, they needed to rely on converting some of this new style bail-in debt that they've issued into equity. So the whole picture was complicated this year by the introduction of new accounting rules. Now, we don't want to spend too much time on them. They're quite Byzantine. However, if these accounting rules were in place today, yes, Barclays and Lloyds would have failed and would have needed to bail in the holders of 81 bonds. And then once they've done that, they get to a mark where they're okay. The bank bailed them in on its actual core central stress test scenario to these bondholders because the bonds are written under these new accounting standards. It's very complex. Everybody passed before having to have the bonds bailed in on the main scenario. Okay, paint the bigger picture for us, Caroline, because these stress tests also came at a time when the Bank of England gave its broader assessment about Brexit risk and indeed on the same day that the government gave its estimates of Brexit impact on the economy. Yeah, that's right. So the Bank of England put out three publications last week, stress tests being just one of them. And as you say, the key publication that everyone was looking for was its assessment of both what a no deal would look like and also the draft agreement that Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has negotiated with the EU, but which has yet to be voted on by the House of Commons. And that led to many headlines that a no-deal scenario could see UK GDP suffer the sharpest drop in the post-war period. However, it must be stressed that these aren't BOE forecasts in the same way that it does for monetary policy. These are very much worst-case scenarios that it has to contingency plan for. And in that regard, the stress test fed into that because it was able to say that UK lenders could withstand the worst of all possible Brexit scenarios and keep on lending to the wider economy. One other little nugget that I thought was quite interesting is that we heard a little bit about the liquidity planning that's been going on, as well as the capital management, which is what the stress tests look at. So we heard from the Bank of England that they've been looking at banks' liquidity and that banks have been trying to improve not only the amount, but also the quality of liquid assets that they hold, now to the tune of £1 trillion. 
and also that they've been pre-positioning collateral at the Bank of England, which would essentially allow them to borrow a further £300 billion if necessary. So all this is with a view to there being a possible big market dislocation in the event that the UK crashes out of the EU without a deal or a transition in place in March. Okay, that's really interesting. And then just remind us of the central scenarios that were in the stress test, some of the kind of figures that were used, for example, in terms of the house price falls and so on? So the stress test, as opposed to the disorderly Brexit scenario, so the stress test GDP saw a fall of 4.7% and in the global scenario, 2.4% of global GDP and also residential property prices falling by a third in the stress test. Now, one interesting point on this is that when you looked at the assumptions the BOE was making for a disorderly Brexit, a cliff-edge Brexit, they thought that GDP might plunge by about 8% in a single year and commercial property prices dropping by about 50%. And actually, that was far worse than what the stress test modelled for. So some questions to really how rigorous the stress test was and also how confident the bank could be in saying that all lenders indeed could withstand a disorderly Brexit. A job for us to do, perhaps, or maybe for some analysts to uh, plug in those numbers into... Uh, I'm sure Sir John Vickers will have a view. (laughs) Indeed. We will follow up on that. Thank you very much. So let's move on to our final topic of the day. And Rob, you did some very interesting reporting on a Unicredit bond issue that came out last week. This was notable not just because it's an Italian bank managing to issue a bond, but actually what they paid for it. Tell us the full story. Yeah, so Unicredit, which is Italy's biggest systemically important bank, kind of took everyone by surprise last week by announcing that he had issued a $3 billion bond to a single buyer, which is obviously highly unusual for this to just suddenly happen. Now, one of the reasons it was particularly notable is it paid nearly 8% for this bond. And the type of bond it issued it earlier this year just paid 1%. Now, there's some differences there because one of them's euro, one of them's dollar, but it's an incredibly high cost of funds I guess they say this was essential that they got this done. It settles a question mark hanging over the bank over whether it would be able to issue this stuff, especially given the macro fragility in Italy. And actually other banks aren't able to issue maybe some of the stuff that they want to. So this settles a big question hanging over them. Yeah, totally. Now, some critics of Unicredit would say that they were really far behind in their issuance program. Now, because Unicredit is systemically important, it has to issue a special type of debt called TLAC, which is total loss absorbing capacity. And basically, that debt can be bailed in in a financial crisis. And of course, it's the only Italian bank that comes into this category yes. internationally. There's dozens of others around the world, but they have the dubious honour of being in that category Indeed. in Italy. Does it matter to them? Because it's a relatively small amount of money. It obviously increases their costs of funds across the board. But I guess in the mix, it doesn't make that much difference. Yes and no, I guess. Now, Jean-Pierre Mustier, the chief executive of Unicredit, he talked to us last week and he conceded that the funding cost was not ideal, which was a lovely piece of understatement. But he did also point out that they've already factored in this sort of high funding cost into the projections next year. So it's not going to rupture any financial plans 
for Unicredit or anything like that. But it says a lot about where Italian banks are right now and what does it mean for the kind of second tier Italian banks, some of which have to raise riskier forms of capital. It's quite troubling from that perspective. And there's no sign, obviously, of the macro concerns stabilising anytime soon. So it's definitely one to watch. We'll come back to you, Rob, for further reports on that. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank David, Caroline and Rob here in the studio. And also thank you to John Glenn for guesting at our banking conference. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.